Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. For years, it was common practice for medical residents to perform pelvic exams on women who were unconscious. It sounds bizarre even to say it, but while these women were under anesthesia, often for unrelated procedures, physicians in training would be instructed to insert an instrument into their vaginas, and they'd follow them with two fingers. The women didn't ask for these exams and in many cases were given no chance to consent to them, and the idea was simply to give the medical residents needed training. Many states have since clamped down on the practice. That includes Illinois, which passed a law against it in 2004. But Missouri is not yet one of them, and State Representative Shamed Dogan would like to change that. He's joined us today to talk about the bill he's introduced that would prohibit the practice without consent. Representative Dogan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. And we're also joined today by author Jill B. Delston. She's a professor of philosophy at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, and she's the author of a book that gets into this a bit called Medical Sexism. Jill, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me again. So Jill, I have to be honest, I had no idea this was even a thing until I read a chapter about it in your book. When did you first learn this was going on? I first learned about it in 2017. I was collecting research for my book and a friend of mine, Krista Thomason, a professor of philosophy, um, emailed me an article in the Washington Post. Um, That article was actually written in 2003 by Avram Goldstein. And it described this practice, and it relied on um, evidence, and it was fitting with this constellation of issues I was addressing in my book. And in your book, you talk about this survey that was done, um, I guess it was at this point about 10 years ago, but at least in Canada, it was commonplace. That's right. Um, And a survey was done that found the vast majority of doctors had uh, performed these exams on unconscious patients as part of their training. And so the issue was we were bringing this to light. People didn't know to be upset about it because they weren't aware that it was going on. Representative Dogan, um, what brought this to your attention? Social media, like a lot of things. Um, I started reading articles around the end of 2017 um, that my wife's friends were posting and friends of mine were posting from places like Slate.com. And I started reading more articles um, that this was happening around states around the country and that only a handful of states had passed any legislation around it, and Missouri wasn't one of them. And so what was your response to to learning about this and realizing where Missouri stood in the the pantheon of states? Yeah, just um, kind of shock and uh, wanting to dig in deeper. Um, So filing that legislation um, started the process of having some conversations with um, the medical schools, some former students of the medical schools, as well as the professional organizations, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, um, and the professors of OBGYN. And that's been a kind of two-year process of hearing their opinions. And um, I think we've made a lot of progress in terms of um, understanding what these universities' policies are on this issue. So in a minute, we did reach out to a bunch of local universities or several local medical schools to see what their policies are about this. But I'm wondering, um, after you started pursuing this, you introduced this bill originally last year. um, Did people try to tell you, we don't do this, we've never done this? What, What kind of response did you get from the medical community? That was the initial reaction we got last year uh, when I introduced the bill for the first time. Um, And it was a little bit, you know, jarring because I'd heard from some uh, former students that they were trained um, to do these exams. Um, Now, these may have been people who went to school 20, 30 years ago. um, And it seems that the universities, WashU, uh, Mizzou, SLU, are not doing this right now. But we also don't know 
um, doctors who are operating outside of teaching hospitals, you know, mm-hmm. could they be engaging in this not involving medical sco- students necessarily? It's a really interesting question. And if you're listening to this show, we're especially interested to hear today from anyone in the medical community who has insights into this topic. Have you witnessed this kind of procedure? And was it something that came up in your own training? You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Jill Delston, I'm wondering if you have a sense of whether this is something that is still going on. Today, Yes, I think it is still going on today. Um, There's still articles being uh, published on this issue. There was a recent New York Times article um, by Emma Goldberg that talked about interviewed patients who had experienced this or thought they may have experienced this. Um, There's still articles being published in as recently as uh, 2018 by bioethicists describing the practice. And anecdotally, after my talks, I do have medical professionals come up to me and say, yes, um, this is something that I've experienced or that I've done. So it does seem as though it's still occurring. Interesting. Now, as I mentioned, we did reach out to local teaching hospitals to see what their policies were. And um, they had kind of lengthy responses, but I do want to read them in full. So if you can bear with me here. Um, We heard from Dr. Tammy Song, who's the vice chair for education and clerkship director for the OBGYN program at Washington University School of Medicine. She said that departmental policy calls for explicit consent, and BJC Healthcare, which owns the hospitals where these physicians train, said that is their policy as well. The pelvic exam also, quote, must be related to the planned procedure done under direct supervision by the educator and performed by a trainee who is recognized by the patient to be a part of their care team. Dr. Son continues, this topic is not new. I can at least personally attest to a time point of 2004 when I was an intern here and was specifically told that the patient needed consent specifically for this to be done by the surgical team. Since 2011, I've been the clerkship director for our rotating students in our specialty field, and we discuss this topic at orientation for each new group of students. I explain the concepts and instructions in place for patient consent. Um, Jill, I'd I'd love to get your take on that. Does that sound like a a pretty decent policy? I I would still have some follow-up questions about that policy. For example, a patient might know that there are trainees that are involved in their care, and they might know that the pelvic exam is required as part of the gynecological procedure that they're undergoing. But what they might not know, and I, I didn't hear an answer to the question of whether more than one person is performing this exam. So certainly a pelvic exam is a requirement for a gynecological procedure, or many procedures like this. Um, but is it being done twice, once by the uh, surgeon and once by the trainee? Is it being done three times? So um, you'd be concerned if it was happening more times than it needed to. Right, because um, maybe the consent is to the fact that a trainee will be involved in their care, but not explicitly to the fact that the trainee will be doing an additional pelvic exam. Hmm. Um, SSM Health Hospitals didn't get back to us in time for the show, but we did hear from St. Louis University, uh, whose doctors and residents practice there. And their statement said, at St. Louis University School of Medicine, doctors and medical students do not perform pelvic exams under anesthesia without consent. Patients who undergo surgery sign consent forms, and pelvic exams under anesthesia would be performed only when medical necessary. SLU is in the process of formalizing these current practices into policy. Representative Dogan, curious about your response to that. Well, I think what we're trying to do with this legislation uh, is modeling not only what the other states have done, but modeling what's in the guidelines of the Association of Professors of Gynecology and Obstetrics. And their policy says that um, they believe that uh, students should only perform pelvic exams when the patients give explicit consent and recognize that the, patient, that the student is part of their care team. 
and that the exam has to be clinically relevant, so it can't mm -hmm. be unrelated surgeries, and when an educator is directly supervising uh, that examination. And so that's what this legislation does. Um, we've gotten feedback from Dr. San and some of the other folks saying that we need to clarify some of the language to make sure that students are included in the bill, and I'm more, more than happy to work with them on some of the language, but um, I see no reason why anybody should object to putting in legislation what's already in their professional guidelines. Now, this is the second year in a row you've introduced this bill to stop the practice in Missouri. What happened to the bill you introduced last year? Well, we unfortunately didn't even get it referred to a committee, much less have a hearing on it. Um, and when you have a hearing on a bill, that's when you get an opportunity to hear from members of the public, from the associations, from medical students, from doctors, um, from everybody who has a stake in this issue about what the, reality, what, the, what the reality is, um, and we didn't have that opportunity. So I've had to continue those conversations kind of in private, and I'd love to have a public hearing on that uh, this year so that we can make some progress. So people are aware of this bill, but it hasn't been assigned a committee. Who has the power to assign this bill to a committee? Um, that's at the discretion of the Speaker of the House. Um, and I've also talked with, um, because you have to have a bill referred to a committee, and this type of legislation would normally go to the Committee on Children and Families. Um, and the chairwoman of that committee, Sheila Solon, is a good friend of mine and is very interested in uh, this issue and in having that bill sent to her committee. Any luck in getting this bill assigned to a committee this year? Not yet. I'm hopeful we still are only about halfway through the session, so we have two months and some change to go. So I'm hopeful that we'll be able to get that done in the next few, few weeks. Do you think there's been political pressure to not allow this bill to advance? Potentially. I mean, one of the issues here is that there's been kind of a political issue with um, the Democrats having uh, in a separate but unrelated issue, uh, they're talking about pelvic exams before abortions, and maybe folks in our party don't want to open up that whole can of worms, which I can kind of understand, but that is a completely different issue. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that timing, I can see how people might confuse these two things. And Jill, on that subject, um, you know, Missouri ended up in the news because abortion rights advocates are pushing back on rules that effectively require abortion providers in some cases to give two of these pelvic exams before the procedure. And when it comes to unwanted pelvic exams, you've argued that we shouldn't just shrug and say, you know, this is a procedure that has to be done. You're saying that this is a big deal. You even invoked a name that has been in the news in the last year um, for criminal conduct. Explain to us your concerns here. Yeah, I mean, my concern here is that um, without the consent that's associated with this procedure, um, that, you know, we have a name for what happens when you, you know, digitally penetrate someone's vagina without their consent. And so... Um, and what is, what is that word? That word is rape. <laughs> and so you feel like this this is right up there? I do. If you look at the FBI definition of rape, um, they define rape as penetration, no matter how slight, of the vagina or anus with any body part or object or oral penetration by a sex organ of another person without the consent of the victim. Hmm. And so what I'm concerned here um, about is the fact that, you know, we need to protect doctors just as much as we need to protect patients. It doesn't help doctors to breed mistrust. It doesn't help the doctor-patient relationship if there is fear-mongering. And so if medical trainees feel uncomfortable with this practice, they need to be able to speak up. 
um, if doctors are uncomfortable with this practice, they need protection too. So I think that there's a benefit all around to a, a law like this one. Now, I don't want to be coy here. The, the name that you invoked was Dr. Larry uh, Nasser, Yeah. And I may be mispronouncing that. Um, but he's the physician who ended up um, doing, I believe, uh, hundreds of years of prison time that he was sentenced to because of what he did to young gymnasts. Mm-hmm. Was he giving these young gymnasts pelvic exams? No, he wasn't. Um, what he was doing was you know, just a s- sexual molestation for his own uh, sexual pleasure. And the uh, the comparison between these pelvic exams and Larry Nasser's behavior um, was first made by a bioethicist, Arthur Kaplan. And I think that, you know, when we think about a person like Larry Nasser, he was doing this for his own sexual gratification. But the FBI definition of rape does not include sexual gratification as part of what rape means. Rape can have many different reasons or um, uh, it can be about power. It can be about control. And so I think that we just have to be really careful here. Um, again, I don't want to fear monger, but I also want to be really careful about what we're doing and what we're allowing. And Representative Dogan, it was it was interesting reading some of these news stories that I know brought this to your attention and, and that I've later gotten up to speed on. It felt like for some of the women who found out after the fact that this is this had happened to them, they felt this similar sense of a violation. Yeah, and some of them were sexual assault victims, and that brought back all the trauma that that entailed. Um, and I believe, Jill, that's such an excellent point, the fact that um, this is sexual assault at the end of the day, even if it's um, not with that malicious intent. Um, it is not very difficult for doctors to get consent from patients um, and to do it written, to do it orally, however they want to document that consent. Um, all we're asking is that they get that consent before they give uh, an exam to an unconscious patient. <laughs> We're talking to State Representative Shamed Dogan about his bill that would stop physicians from being able to give pelvic exams to unconscious women uh, without their consent. And we're also talking to author Jill B. Delston, who's also a professor at UMSL. Um, Jill, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I just wanted to follow up on this point that, um, you know, a lot of women, female patients will say, I would be happy to consent to this practice, even if it is for a training purpose. Um, A majority of patients seem to give that response when we look at surveys. And so there's not a lot of reason to think that um, patients are being unreasonable about this. But we are being treated as unreasonable when we're, we're not asked for our consent. And so I think that in this instance, um, you know, asking for consent is a really valuable addition. Now, you've also written in your book about how there's consent and there's consent without coercion. Um, Walk us through the difference there. Well, I think that when you look at an example like this, when a patient might have their other care threatened if they say no to the procedure, what you can see is that they're not really being given an offer that they can refuse. Mm. They're being given a restricted choice there. Either you consent to this procedure or maybe a trainee giving an additional exam to you as part of your procedure, or we can't perform the surgery at all. Now, of course, there are some surgeries that we cannot do without a pelvic exam, but does that mean that a trainee also has to be in Involved. So in, in those instances, when the pelvic exam and the additional pelvic exam being used for training purposes is th- threatening their other care, then we have worries about, even when people do consent, whether that consent is given freely. So Representative Dogan, how do you deal with that? How do you legislate consent that isn't done under pressure when it's it's almost an amorphous thing a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really uh, interesting example. 
And I, I think one of the points of the guidelines of the professors of OBGYN is that you should be only doing this in surgeries that are relevant. Um, you know, when you have someone coming in for a knee replacement, um, you probably shouldn't be doing a pelvic <laughs> exam for training purposes in the first place. I, I would hope we could all agree <laughs> on that, right? Right. Um, so the idea that you would kind of have this quid pro quo of, you know, give us consent or else you can't have your unrelated surgery, um, you know, it's one of those things that you wouldn't think you would have to put in an ethics guideline, much less put into law, but someone out there is doing it. Yeah, so. <laughs> clearly they realize they did. Jill? Yes, and I think that um, there's probably not a lot of evidence that this is going on in completely unrelated procedures, but, uh, you know, there's a symbolic value of having a law like this, even if it's not occurring to the extent that we fear it might be. And how so? Um, just to sort of serve as a deterrent? That's right. And to show, um, to protect patients, to protect doctors, and to show how important consent is in the relationship between a doctor and a patient, and how patients have a right to refuse treatment, patients have a right to get the care that they need, and um, to protect against medical sexism. And Jill, you also made one, um, a great point in your book where you pointed out that doing a pelvic exam on an unconscious woman maybe isn't even as effective if you're trying to learn how to do one as it would be to do it on someone who's conscious. Explain that to us. Well, the problem is that when you do an exam on an unconscious patient, you don't get the same amount of information. Um, and a lot of the people who are being trained on giving pelvic exams will then have to go on to give pelvic exams to conscious patients. It's a different experience. Um, and so there's limited educational value of these exams because bedside manner matters, the discomfort of the patient matters, um, talking to the patient about the results matters. And so if, if doctors are not learning those components of the pelvic exam, then they're really not getting a complete picture of what pelvic exams offer. And so there's this, um, I think it's bad medicine, it's bad science, it's bad philosophy because uh, of the, the moral and um, issues and the consent and the rights, but it's also bad education. Yeah, and I like to just piggyback on that because in my meeting with Dr. San and some of her medical students, one of the points that they brought up was the fact that it had benefited them to walk through the process of obtaining consent from their patients and building that trust. Um, and then once they were in that exam, being able to get that feedback uh, from a patient who is conscious and who knows what's going on and you've kind of informed them throughout the process, this is what I'm about to do, you know, how are you doing, this is what I've done. And, you know, that just gives everyone involved a little bit more peace of mind. Representative Dogan, what would be the penalty for somebody who would violate this this thing if it became law? It subjects them to discipline by um, their professional organizations. So we're not talking about locking people up or criminalizing it so that you'd be uh, going to jail. So. So it could be a problem for somebody in terms of um, the medical board would want to deal with them, but right. it's not immediately being turned over to, to the DA. That's right. Okay. Well, that, that sounds like that should also hopefully help some people rest assured. So you've got this bill again this year. Uh, what happens if, again, you can't get this bill to refer to committee this year? Are you going to come back next year? I would I would think so. I mean, I'm in a little bit of an uncomfortable position, honestly, as a man sponsoring this legislation. So I'd like to have one of my female colleagues kind of take the lead on it next year. So I hope some of them might be listening. So you're hoping somebody else will take up the mantle here and run with it? Yes. Well, hopefully I think this is something uh, somebody may want to get behind. So Representative Shamed Dogan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. <laughs> and author Jill B. Delston, uh, author of Medical Sexism, thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.